Hey guys, this is Tim Powell from the Minerals and Royalties Authority. I recently sat down with Jim Mutry, Managing Partner at Saxum Energy Partners, who recently announced the close of their first fund for $435 million, as well as their acquisition of Lux Minerals in the Permian Basin. During the episode, Jim walks through Saxum's overall strategy, structure, and acquisition criteria in the Haynesville, Eagleford, and Permian. Let's jump into the episode and hear more of what Jim had to say. All right, Jim, good afternoon and welcome onto the podcast. Uh, always great to have new players. You guys just announced the close of your first fund. You've done a bunch of big deals. So there's plenty to talk about, uh, which is great. So I'm looking forward to diving in. But um, yeah, me too. Thanks for having me, Tim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I always like to give a little personal context where we jump in. And I think what's interesting is kind of your initial foyer with with the mineral space via switchback, which I'm looking to get into. But yeah. where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? What's your what's your hat, your trade in, in the oil patch? And uh, let's walk through your evolution, your career prior to launching Saxon. Yeah, you bet. Uh, so I actually grew up kind of by the Hampshire border, so Northwest Massachusetts, and uh, <clears throat> went to college in upstate New York. Went to Cornell there, met a girl from Waco, Texas. I'm from Long Island, the and I'm a golfer. I played in the New York State Championships for five years, and it was yeah. held at Robert Trent Jones Golf Course at Cornell every year. It's a it's a great track. I wish I yeah. had played golf more. Like growing up and when I, I started when I was up there, so I wasn't any good, but it's a really nice track. It's just a hard place to get to. I haven't been back in years. It, it is it is way up there. No, it was cool because um you go up and there was eleven sections in New York and I was section eleven, I think. And so you go up and it's like eleven or twelve guys and you know, you all dorm together in the dorms and, you know, I'm, I'm a ninth grader, tenth grader, whatever. I'm oh my God, it's so cool. I'm on my own. My parents aren't around. It was fun. And then you walk to the the golf course and it was, you know, Robert Trent Jones, really good, slick greens. Um, it was fun. I had some some good times out there. So you, there's a couple of folks that are from New York, uh, but not too many or from the Northeast, I should say, at least right. that are in the, the patch here in Texas. But uh, anyways, continue. It's funny. My next yeah, last kind of New York or uh, upstate Massachusetts to getting in the patch, my next door neighbor growing up a woman named Ann Fox who runs nine energy services now. Yeah. So you got two, I guess, kind of new Englanders by birth, at least, you know, now in the oil patch down in Texas together. I met a girl from, I said, Waco, Texas, um, followed her down here in 97. So I moved to Dallas in 97. So I've been in Dallas, you know, longer than anywhere else at this point in my life. But I came down here really without a good idea what I wanted to do. I had a bunch of buddies that were going into consulting. I that didn't seem right to me. I just I wasn't that interested. I knew I wanted to work on deals. That sounded exciting. You know, maybe go kind of get myself inside on a company. But I didn't really have. I was like a liberal arts major. Didn't have the background for that. So what my background, at least school wise, set me up for was law school. And I was like, well, you know, maybe I can make the transition, go to law school, work on deals, and maybe I can get more on the deal side eventually. Maybe go in house. So went to law school, started at a firm, but knew we wanted to live in Dallas. So worked at at some firms in Dallas and chose Vincent and Elkins. So you know, do a bunch of energy work. They had a bunch of good transactions going on. This is back in 
03, maybe 04, something like that. Um, so worked there for, for a few years, I guess about three years or so. And it kind of had somewhat plateaued where I'd seen a lot of stuff, but wasn't really learning as much and ready to kind of try to move forward. So I took an, in, an in-house role with a uh, private equity firm, a company they had taken public and were buying it back private. And they would do a lot of transactions. It was out of the oil space or out of the energy space, but it would be a lot of deal work and kind of let me get into the next stage of my career. So I went over there after, as I said, three or four years at, at V&E to this company called USPI. And so I started talking to the guys, kind of the management team who put together RSP Permian, started talking to them back in late 13 as they were thinking of taking RSP public and then decided to make that move over there. And we take RSP Permian public in January of 2014, uh, obviously Permian pure play. And I don't know if it'll be relevant later on, you know, went went public on a, a Midland Basin footprint, but then back in 17, I guess, 16, maybe 16, probably. Um, we bought Silver Hill. So got into the Delaware Basin at RSP uh, and then sold the Concho in uh, July of 2018. And if you want, then just kind of wrap it up, how we get to, to switch back, because we're happy to dive into that a little bit. So we sell to Concho in July of 18, have a one-year non-compete. And we had seen that evolution that everybody in the industry knows about you know we when we go public in 14 and probably all the way through 16 kind of mid midish 16 capital's readily available right we announce a deal our stock would go up we'd say we're you know funding we're we're issuing equity to fund the deal and our stock would still go up more i mean it was you know kind of funny money for a while there and then investors started to tighten down on you know outspending your budget and wait a second you get a return start returning capital and so that became a real focus for a lot of guys in the industry, certainly was for us in 17 and 18 as we sell. So when I'm thinking about what do I want to do while well, I have that one year non-compete in 18, you know, that mantra of returning money to investors and stop outspending your, you know, your budget, not just living within cash flow, but you know, running whatever returning capital was in my head. And I really was thinking at the time. Folks are less concerned, or at least I don't know the investors that I was familiar with, with trying to hit grand slams and more the doubles, you know, singles, doubles, and maybe a triple or something. So we came up with a strategy with NGP that, you know, once that non-compete ran, we would launch a vehicle where we could go raise a significant amount of capital to consolidate minerals and try to create another public mineral company. So so Viper had grown up out on the Spanish Trail, which we had a bunch of non-op and operated interest co-mingled with Viper. We were very familiar with it. And I thought just, you know, it's a great business model. Maybe not, you know, we wouldn't be able to set up day one, the the operator element that Viper has, but you know, just a public public mineral company. And so when we launched switchback um, after the one year non-compete, so this is July 19, that's what we were targeting. Have you ever found yourself wandering the halls of Nape, feeling lost in the sea of boots and attendees, and thinking to yourself, where the hell are all the minerals and non-op executives? Well, my friends, worry no more. On February 8th, Nape will be launching their inaugural Minerals and Non-op Hub, which will serve as a dedicated and central location for minerals and non-op executives to network and show deals. For more information, please Google Nape Minerals and Non-op Hub or email exhibit at napexpo.com.
Yeah, I mean, so, but and, and just for everyone listening, Switchback was a SPAC, right? And so yep. you have a big checkbook to go out and, and do some roll-ups. Saxon today is focused on the Permian, the Haynesville, and, and also the Eagle for it continues to be on your horizon. Were yeah. you looking at those same bases or were you looking, this is obviously five right. years ago, the world's a little bit different, but were you looking uh, in, uh, in other areas? Yeah, and I think that's when you and I first met. Actually, was back in is nineteen, and it's just what you said. We so when we we were talking to NGP, and the focus was to be relevant for public investors. We thought we needed a market cap at least a billion dollars. You can argue whether you do or you don't, but that was our thinking at the time. And so, how do we get a billion plus acquisition right out of the gate? And as much as they liked us, I don't think they wanted to cut us a billion plus check. But yeah, back in, and they'd had success with SPACs in the past. So this was before they became, you know, hot and then and then the opposite of hot subsequent to that. But it, it had worked before. So that's what we went out with. Yeah. How do you raise, uh, you know, capital to, to do a large scale deal? Our focus was the Permian Basin. At least at the at the start. Now we can talk a little bit about the evolution, but yeah, the focus, especially kind of rolling out of RSP and the success we had there, and the institutional folks who have made a bunch of money with us at RSP. Uh, we just had this natural story of us getting back in the Permian Basin, and frankly, all our connections, the majority of them, were in the Permian. Like a lot of it made sense. It was still you know not as not as competitive then as it is now. So the focus was that. So we went out and raised institutional capital. And I can't, I think it was 325 million or something, 325. And it was all built around, we're going to consolidate minerals in the Permian Basin. So that's, that's all it was. And it's a funny mix, those SPAC public investors. Some of them were guys we had known, knew the oil patch, knew us in particular. So easy story. And then it's other guys who, like you would ex- expect, all they, they were only SPAC players. They hear minerals. They think, you know, rare earth, it was a 2019, rare earth minerals and you know, they have no idea what they're buying, but the thesis was it's we're going to consolidate minerals in the Permian Basin. And yeah, I can tell you how we got to the conclusion of that, but it was an unbelievable experience because we we then spent 11 months or so, I'd say 10 months. And I think I had over it was over 100 Southwest individual flights because I would track my expenses, you know, to go meet and talk to people about anything of any size in the Permian Basin, any any position of any size. And we so we put together a transaction back in early, it was started to formulate in late 19, got it kind of all pieced together with five large mineral companies, four of which now have sold, but it's a lot of folks, you know, everybody knows. But five way roll up. That's no wonder the, uh, I didn't go through. <laughs> That's ambitious. Well, <laughs> it's and who knows if we ever could have held it together, right? I mean, you may you may have you may not have ever been able to hold it together, but we had it was about a billion four transaction. I think was the total was the total market or equity value of the transaction, and we had gotten it to a place, believe it or not, where everybody and who knows maybe when it came to the licking log and actually signing the PSA, it would have fallen apart, but where they all agreed on relative value enough that they were willing to push forward. And we had to be as objective as possible because, right, you can't do any favors to one guy without totally effing up the deal with everybody else. But so we put that together. We lined up and Goldman was the lead on that. We had a bunch of other bank, RBC and CS and TPH. And we put together, um, if you remember those SPACs, you you announce a deal and you hope to announce a pipe 
you know, what is it, private investment and public equity Mm -hmm. to put additional capital, get additional LPs into it at the time you announced the deal. And so we had lined up all those meetings. I mean, it gotten this far where we had our pipe meetings lined up with the T Rose and Fidelity and all of that for the Monday, what turned out to be after that. Saudi Russian price war, if you remember that back in kind of yeah. early ish 2020. So, you know, this is supposed to be on Monday and come Friday, you know, the what was it? The Saudis opened the taps, I guess, or it, maybe it was Thursday that week. But it, nonetheless, over the weekend, we we put all the meetings on pause. We're like, you guys aren't going to be paying attention to anything, you know, with us, with the markets going crazy. We'll come back to you in a couple of weeks when everything settles out. And, and again, everybody knows what happened in 2020. So the markets don't settle out right away. COVID, yada, yada. Long story short, COVID happens. And that deal that made a lot of sense at, at negative oil, you know, doesn't make any sense. Right. And that's the, it, that, and I can tie this in a little bit to Saxon. You know, that left an impression on me, this kind of fickle public capital. It maybe it's not the best capital for minerals. And so, you know, again, with oil trading negative, nobody wants to take public a, a public mineral company or anything in the oil space, period, or anything in the traditional energy space. So yeah, we switched back there. Then we ended up, which a lot of folks did at the time, we were just an early mover, I guess, pivoting into a green energy deal, which is what investors wanted at the time. And that's the way those SPAC works. You just give what they want. So we bought this, the largest EV charging company in the world. And, you know, I'm going to close at $40 a share. So like everybody loved it at the time. I thought it was, it was, it was great. Not anything I ever ran or my skill set. It was more just we were a vehicle for them to get public. But as I said, it formulated, left an impression when we go back and try to do this again, like really what's the structure, what's the capital, you know, what type of investor do you want? And let's build this around what makes sense for minerals. Yeah. So you fast forward, it's it's September 2022. You you launched Saxum. Now, what's interesting, you go back, uh, we're sitting here recording this November 2nd, October 10th, you press release the the close of your your first fund at 435 million. And, you know, for those who have a relationship with you or, you know, you and I have talked to get visibility on your first deal in the Haynesville and then the following deal in the Permian. But what's interesting is that when you announced that close and the, and the acquisition of Lux is actually a fully deployed fund, which is, which is different. And so everyone listening um, to this podcast, who's tried to raise capital, knows that blind pool risk is not in vogue and knows how challenging fundraising is. And so your entire capital stack is high net worth and family offices, which is very impressive. So congrats to your team. But a lot of them were investing into a fully deployed portfolio and you removed that blind pool risk. So really curious on on how you guys came to that and how you were able to pull it off over to you yeah I as much as you know I, I hope and I think our LPs like the management team and and I may have a good relationship with a lot of these guys that goes back a ways I'm, I'm kidding myself at least as quickly as it happened let me say it that way I'm kidding myself if they would have invested as willingly if we didn't have a deal and didn't have something to eliminate the blind pool risk you know maybe we could have got there I think it would have been a longer a longer slog for sure. So how it happened was when we set out to launch Saxon, I and mean, I'm partnering again with a lot of guys that I was partners with at RSP Permian, then go to Switchback, then move on to Saxon. We tried to do it. If we could, we wanted to do a direct LP model rather than private equity and have a phenomenal relationship with the folks I've worked with on the private equity side. But we thought for, you know, just kind of control and economics and, and actually kind of 
lessening fees for LPs. Let's try to do it direct. But if we did it direct, the, the thesis was let's try to go out and raise some capital ahead of time. So we can actually buy some assets. And then when we go out to a broader fundraise, we have something that they can touch, feel, and underwrite. There's less blind pool risk. Now, we didn't say let's you know go kind of fully have all the deals you know lined up. That's yeah. kind of what I see is folks try to get a seed asset because you want something yeah. for them to chew on and get comfortable with your team's underwriting. And so you kind of allude to that as lessening the blind pool risk, but then right. did it evolve into we're, we're going to be able to take down all these deals and then simultaneously, you know, ring fence all the capital and, and close and get the deal done all at the same time? hundred percent. Yeah. So that, that was like a, an evolution of the process where we got our seed capital. And so we have three big seed investors plus what myself and the rest of the management team put in. So we were able to get that lined up first. So we had 285 million with the kind of seed investors, Ken Hirsch, Steve Gray, you know, I said management, and then an individual named Adam, Adam Sin, uh, who's a big commodity trader in Houston, has Aspire Commodities. And so again, all folks who believe, a lot, we have personal relationships with all of them, and they believe in the in the space and, and kind of the long-term needs for traditional hydrocarbons. So we get that capital and in no way, and we told them we would go out and use that to buy deals that look like what we bought, you know, mineral deals and possibly a non-op. We have a small non-op piece, but focus on mineral deals, a distribution model for LPs. We don't charge a management fee, uh, you know, kind of an LP friendly deal. We don't back teams. We're going to buy and manage the asset ourselves. No double promote. Like here's the structure. Here's what we're looking for. You know, kind of trust us. And we had relationships with them to let us have that capital. We use that then to go buy that that Mesa transaction that you talk of, that you've mentioned before, you know, Darren's deal. We bought a undivided one third interest in that in a small non-op deal. And so we had assets then that were distributing cash, you know, the form, the the base, what would make it, what eventually made up, I don't know, about a, a, a third-ish to maybe a little more than that of the overall fund. And then with that, we launched out into a broader capital raise. And at that point, yeah, Tim, that that's when kind of the light flip that, wait a second, you know, now we, we have deal, we have assets they can look at. We've got to tell them what the rest of this is going to look like. And we had enough kind of ongoing discussions, which eventually happened with Lux, that we weren't saying we're going to be able to go buy, you know, Lux, but we were having discussions with them, another deal or two that were all trending in the direction that we say, we feel pretty good. It's going to look something like this. And we would describe, you know, large Permian mineral, mineral footprint. And so that got people, you know, real, really interested in the deal. And then we were able to actually eventually to negotiate, to take a look at, you know, Lux, come to an agreement on a number. And the way that worked out, we were able to agree on a on a, that same one third, an undivided one third interest, a number for that, and brought in some more capital when we were buying that. And then we're able to even more uh, kind of forcefully say, hey, you know, we're able to come to a deal for a third. There may be a chance for two thirds. And NGP hasn't committed to anything at all or anything like that. But again, just kind of keeping this dialogue going with these high net worth and family office folks where they're getting interested, they're nowhere coming. Then eventually we come to a a price on the on the other two thirds, and uh, everybody comes in because they were already kind of prepped for it, and then it was easy. And the, and it ended up happening in the matter of you know raise that additional capital from kind of about three twenty or no less than that. We we're probably at three hundred at that point, probably three 
300, 310, up to at 435 in the last week in July and the first two weeks of August. But it was because everybody was already prepped. Like they already knew what was coming. So it wasn't much of a process at that point. Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to all of our podcast sponsors. Looking to ramp up deal flow for your minerals and non-op ground game? Since 2019, the Texas Mineral Company has closed on over 120 deals, totaling $110 million in value, with deal sizes ranging from 50 k upwards of $5 million. Whether you're looking for white space, permit, duck, PDP, AFE, or wellbore-only deals, the Texas Mineral Company has got you covered. For more information on how to source deal flow from the Texas Mineral Company, please email Toby Martinez at Toby at thetexasmineralcompany.com. Over the past 20 years, Riverbend Energy Group has been the definitive leader in the non-op and mineral space, where they are actively acquiring minerals in the Delaware Basin, Midland Basin, the Williston, and the Eagleford. Following their $1.8 billion sale of their non-op platform in 2022, they are also back actively acquiring non-op interests in the Delaware Basin, Midland Basin, and Williston. If you have minerals or non-op working interests in these areas that you would like to sell, then please visit www.riverbendenergygroup.com for more information. Farmers National Company has oil and gas experts located across the country ready to provide you unmatched convenience and service for your land management needs. Whether you're looking for turnkey management of oil and gas interests or simply looking for an advisor to help you sell or lease your minerals, Farmers National Company has you covered. Learn more about Farmers National Company's team of certified mineral managers, landmen, attorneys, and accountants by going to fncenergy.com or reach out directly at energy at farmersnational.com. Does your team ever struggle with employee turnover? What about right-sizing your team to fit your company's needs over time? Do you have the right accounting systems and software in place to maintain control and visibility on all your cost centers? If any of these things are challenges in your business, then Opportune's back office outsourcing could be the right solution. For more information, please visit www.opportune.com. You know, it's uh, it's fascinating. And, you know, you and I have talked about it. I mean, when you have the right anchor investors, their relationship network is extensive and raising around a deal really helps. I mean, your advisory board is is world class. And you already mentioned Ken, who's founder, co-founder of NGP. And it's funny, you know, if you were to go back, you're an early associate at Vincent and Elkins, you get to know NGP. If you could say, hey, by the way, in 20 years, we're going to be partnered together on on a vehicle. It's just (laughs) kind of fun to play those games. But, you know, Stephen Gray, who was the CEO of OSP Permian, um, Adam Sin, and then also Welford Tabor, who's with with HF Capital, right, out of Charlotte. So world-class advisory board, and then you look at their circles, and you got a good deal, it's there, people can see the underwriting, see what that that, uh, distribution model is going to look like. And then, you know, you guys are in charge of a management fee. These are all, all things that investors profess to want. GP alignment, yield, a deal, no blind pool risk. So not everyone is going to be able to have 285 million in seed capital. Right. But you know, the, the other thing too, you can, we've kind of been dancing around this, but if you want to just kind of break down the deal criteria and kind of the acquisition model that you guys have, it is up market. If someone yep. got a ground game diversified portfolio, there's no way they could raise capital this way. It's just, you can't do it. I mean, but on a larger deal, especially an off market one, you can kind of collaborate with investors and herd them together and, and try to play that game to, to close it. So anyways, but 
walk me through the that what what was uh Darren's portfolio yeah. again when you took a third and then talk about the Lux portfolio and and just kind of general what because it's interesting the the Mason one was a third Lux was going to be a third and then you upped it and took the whole thing right, so just right what's the general size and kind of res cat mix and all that that you guys were targeting at yeah, uh, hundred to hundred percent. I'll go through all that uh, on that last the point you made before about kind of the way we were structuring things too. Yeah, it's a little bit of a corny expression, but we call it kind of stacking the deck or stacking the, the deck for investors. But to us, I think to be able to raise that capital, or maybe say it differently, I don't know if we would have been able to raise the capital, both the seed capital and the the additional capital, if you weren't razor focus on alignment with the, again, the, the management fee and I think minerals, there's a certain investor that likes that return of, of capital and the no double promote and no blind pool risk. I mean, all those things kind of stack the deck, I think for us to be able to, to get it done. But in terms of yeah, focus of what we were looking, looking for, you're right. We have been, and maybe this is because we spent so much time focusing on it back at switchback. I mean, we were upstream buyers for sure we, we don't have a ground game we have a network of landmen that are out there you know doing their own deals looking for things that send stuff our way so we do buy little uh, smaller kind of add-on packages but that's that's not our focus and that's not something that um, you know we have landmen out there doing where we think we can bring value is on larger positions where we really understand kind of the development and, and most of our team has an operational background as well at least the technical guys to really understand the development program of different operators and kind of a larger view of parts of the basin where they're going to get developed and, you know, everything that how many wells per section and timing and yada, yada, um, where we can evaluate these, these larger deals that will throw off, you know, large amounts of capital. Define larger deals. Yeah. I'd say the floor, I mean, we certainly haven't spent any time, anything under 50 million. I think we really start to look at something when it kind of gets around the hundred or so. So a $75 million deal, we, we certainly would would look at, like we start to get interested when it's again, kind of a hundred to three to four, we probably have the ability on the next one. We think to flex up beyond that to five or six or so with some of the five or 600 million with some of the investors and the amount of capital that they want to deploy. But for us, the sweet spot is somewhere kind of from a hundred to 400 is we're looking in, in that realm. And so it means there's right. Obviously the universe of opportunities is smaller and it, we all get it. I mean, they're getting smaller by the day. There's fewer of those and who knows, maybe we have to shift down a little bit or, but it's weird. It's such a night fight at the ground level that it's almost like, yeah, the opportunities are less, but your competition is less to a degree. And I won't say there's a discount. I mean, we didn't buy anything we bought for a steal, but because of less competition, I mean, you know, you look at our blended price that we're paying across our, there's a lot of little small, you know, one-off deals that go for way more than what we're paying, you know, on an average basis across, but there's just not a lot of people, well, you know, with, that, that want to write larger, larger check sizes. When you look at the Permian, for instance, right? I mean, yeah. where I focus down market, you know, stuff is fairly efficient on how it trades. And so white space in a vacuum in a good area is going to trade pretty aggressively. Now, when you start to look at scale, someone like yourself is going to need the ResCat blend that's necessary. And so for yep. the most part, in order to get the scale for it to be interesting to someone like yourself, stuff needs to be pulled together. And I think it's going to be really difficult to absolutely maximize every NRA in a large deal like that. 
but that's one of the reasons you yeah. play in the market is, you know, because, and that's just kind of the, the, the trade-off, but you know, yeah. if it's a million dollar deal or $2 million deal, there's a lot of optionality. That's why I focus on it when I'm advising on the sell side is because optionality on, you know, not only development profile, but the county, the operator, and I know what everyone's preferences are. And I think you can splice it up, but there's a lot of folks, you know, yeah. Okay. There's not enough PDP. Let me, kind of lump it in or there's a little little more putter. Here's here's some stuff we're not going to get a ton of value for, but we got to lump in some ducks. So there's mm. always a bit of that that puzzle of putting that together uh, and getting the right blend. And then for you guys, yeah. it's that serendipity. You get enough scale and just enough of that stuff hits uh, and you get, you know, the serendipity of earlier drilling and then it, is, it starts to make sense, right? Yeah, you described it so well. And when we talked about the ResCat category, the ResCat, mix that we like i mean there is and there's there's a range there but we like cash flow day one but also growth and you know meat left on the bone a good amount both of those larger assets that we've the mesa one and the lux one were roughly 30 percent developed i mean obviously there's interpretation argument there but somewhere 30 40 percent developed and who knows some of these zones that we didn't give credit to that i could act i could absolutely see in five six seven years um, as we've gone through more and more tier one inventory become perspective, then you know maybe that development is even long, you know further out and longer, and so they're less than thirty five percent developed. But we like some strong cash flow, you know, day one off the assets. So again, it just depends on the deal size. But you know, all in, it's we're generating a significant amount of cash today, but it grows every year for the next six years in our in our modeling as well. So when we think about it, and this is just how we've approached with approach this, we're not a buy and hold forever. We're a 10-year fund to one-year extensions. And our LPs are not going to take the minerals in kind. So we will look to exit those positions. And as we think about it, think about returns in a perfect world, I think we end up looking to try to monetize to sell you know, these assets sometime three, you know, three, four, who knows, three, four years from now. It's all, you know, that's the, the great thing about minerals. And we learned it trying to be the buyer of it back at switchback, you know, there's never a gun to anybody's head and they're going to be generating cash and the price of oil and gas has to be right. And the market has to be right, but we're not, a, it's not hold forever. Uh, we, we do think there will continue to be above us upstream consolidation. I mean, there's a lot of guys with way bigger balance sheets than we have. I'm saying looking out my window right now at GRP's offices, you know, they're literally across the street, right? I mean, there's guys who buy packages like that and ours isn't that big. So we could, we think that we continue to be consolidation and we'll just look for the right time to, to exit those. Hey guys, I wanted to take a quick break from the conversation to say thank you to all of our podcast sponsors. Your property is your legacy. So you should only leave it in the hands of a land management company who has a legacy of its own. If you own oil and gas interests or act as a fiduciary for those who do, you can find a long-term partner at Farmers National Company, who since 1929 has taken great pride in helping clients maximize the benefits of property ownership by providing turnkey management services and by working alongside them through generational transfers of specialized assets such as oil and gas interests and farmland. To learn more, visit fncenergy.com or reach out directly at energy at farmersnational.com. Since 2019, the Texas Mineral Company has been a leading ground game broker for minerals and non-op deals, closing over 120 transactions across the Permian, Scoop Stack, Haynesville, Bakken, Paddle River Basin, DJ, and Eagleford. 
With deal sizes ranging from 50K upwards of 5 million and 1.5 NRAs upwards of 3,500 NRAs, the Texas Mineral Company can be flexible on where and how they can source your deal flow. For more information on how your team can work with the Texas Mineral Company, please email Toby Martinez at toby at thetexasmineralcompany.com. Scaling up your portfolio while minimizing GNA is the name of the game in the minerals and non-op space. Whether you're a brand new fund, an established team who's growing quickly, or a fully developed portfolio in harvest mode, Opportune's back office outsourcing team can help. Stop worrying about all the headaches that come along with day-to-day accounting and back office operations and contact Opportune today. For more information, please visit www.opportune.com. Over the past 20 years, Riverbend Energy Group has been the definitive leader in the non-op and mineral space, where they are actively acquiring minerals in the Delaware Basin, Midland Basin, the Williston, and the Eagleford. Following their $1.8 billion sale of their non-op platform in 2022, they are also back actively acquiring non-op interests in the Delaware Basin, Midland Basin, and Williston. If you have minerals or non-op working interests in these areas that you would like to sell, then please visit www.riverbendenergygroup.com for more information. Well, you know, as a follow to your point on, there's not a gun to your head to sell minerals. Look at Lux, right? So Lux was basically being harvested by NGP. I don't know when the initial capital was deployed, but let's call it 2017, 2018, maybe. So not. I think it's interesting how some of that stuff starts to swing back around because, you know, Nick Verrill and Darren Zanovich and a handful of others have had the good fortune under private equity to build and turn the the asset within their, you know, the, the period that makes sense for them to hit their waterfall, right? And they've, they've done yeah. it again and again. And, um, kudos to those guys. But there's been some other stories of, you know, whether it's like the Fortis asset that was out there and, uh, and just got exited or locks or there's a handful of them, right? And all of a sudden that starts to circle back and uh, becomes a great package for someone like you guys. And I think in the day-to-day, you know, grind and, you know, the networking events and all that, you tend to forget about those sometimes because no one has a Lux badge anymore, right? But there's plenty of those portfolios. And so I think it's interesting. I think that's definitely a way for the of, of deal flow for the next one to three years is some of those things that are on the balance sheet of the private equity firms. You know, I know Elk Ranger's managing it, but I, I kind of right. look at it like that as just being harvested and managed. And then, yeah, your, your point on GRP, I mean, when you were back at Switchback, you know, five company roll up to get 1.4 billion to think one ask one singular asset billion dollars yeah. in spaces it, it's interesting it has grown quite a bit now who knows when the bell curve is like when we start to go down the other end and all the bigger guys have been acquired and now you start have to start aggregating smaller ones again i don't know but then here you guys are starting to consolidate and and you'll be over a billion at some point and in, in an acquisition target so it'll be interesting to see you know what what happens going forward but i appreciate you commenting on that because it's just transparency i mean everyone there's a lot of folks who claim to be end buyers <laughs> but they're not like very few buy and hold forever. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, just, just quick. I would just, I would, I agree with you completely. And we're only talking about the private equity universe when we're saying this one that, that you mentioned, there's the whole other generational kind of family ranching, whatever legacy side and the deal that or something we've been spending time on the last couple of weeks is one of those 
fits in that bucket. But specifically on the private equity side, you're absolutely right. I mean, you think back to, well, you know, Nick and Darren, to your point, phenomenal guys, done extremely well, have been able to buy and, and turn relatively quickly. But there has been so much cap, private equity capital specifically deployed into the space going back to whenever you say it would start 15, 16. I mean, the people have gotten smart. Maybe it took a while before that, but since kind of 17-ish, people have gotten smarter on this more quickly. You know, you're looking at NGPs out raising or already closed their second mineral fund. People are putting more capital. There's been a lot of capital deployed by private equity into the space. And you're right, there's still pockets of it left left there that hasn't has an exited. Yeah, I mean, just throwing out a couple other things as as case studies, right? A, a couple of years ago, outside of Nick's package, you know, John Arnold's group acquired uh, again kind of a harvested portfolio and NCAPs balance sheet in New Mexico. And then if everyone can remember uh Bayswater's Delaware asset that was put together years ago, concentric, right? That kind mm-hmm. of got put in the in the drawer and, and put away. And Cityo gobbled that, that up earlier this year. Um, they announced that as part of another acquisition in Q2. And so, yeah, some of this stuff is starting to circle back. It's interesting. Yeah. You know, just switching gears a little bit, a question I had before, and then we went down this tangent. So you you have your your two kind of flagship assets, Permian Haynesville. So you have a flag in the ground. I know you're you're looking at seventy five hundred plus million dollar deals as a starter, but you know you have a position now, and so tuck ins, you know, proving up your your position in a unit, um, stuff that you just can look at very very quickly because you understand it. Is there room? I mean, you're fully deployed, right? And so you're cash flowing and. Uh, I don't know if you have a deficit or not, but is there a room to say, hey, you know, someone's listening, man, I have something that's that is in the same unit that that Lux had. It's a one and a half million dollar deal. Let me send it to them. It's quick and easy. We can get it to creative, blah, blah, blah. Are, are you entertaining that stuff? Tim, a hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah. And I, that's shame on me for not making that clear. But absolutely. I mean, that's if anybody is listening and has anything that that's any in any way accretive. So whether it's bumping up and you know making a one miler into a two miler or whatever, you know, something that would make sense off of that Lux position in particular or the Mesa position. But we are absolutely open for, for business because you're right, we do it's generating all of our asset base, generating a significant amount of capital, which we have the ability to utilize for transactions. We've got a credit facility that we've paid down now. So have a significant amount of availability. TCB is the, the lead on that facility, but it's a seven seven person facility, I think. So anyway, yeah, we're always on the, on the lookout for that. We're in discussion with folks, operators now about opportunities, but you know whether it's a trade or a, an acquisition, we're, we're definitely interested in, in anything that we think would increase the value of what we have. Okay, great. And then yeah, we were talking about this offline before jumping on the podcast. So fun ones fully deployed. I asked you, I said, uh, does that mean you're fundraising for fun too? And are, are you looking at deals? Or are you not looking at deals? What's the, the status quo? Are you going to buy smaller stuff out of cash flow? We just covered that. Right. And you know, you said you're in the fortunate position. You have such a strong LP base that you're continuing to look at deals and you'll likely kind of club it up and do SPVs or something of the likes around deals going forward. Very similar to how you did the first few deals, but now you have that established uh, LP base. So I guess go into that dynamic and just what you guys are looking for going forward. Yeah, you you explained it well. So we're looking at deals now. I mean, we, we're like everybody probably listening to podcasts. We're deal junkies too. We like to look at stuff all the time, even if 
you know, we're, we have a low likelihood of, of jumping on it right away. We like to be smart and know what's out there because so often let's look at Lux, you know, it's something I became familiar with in 2019 and then you don't transact with it until, until 2020, the end of 2023. So yeah, we're always looking at stuff, but I mean, we are focused, at least part of the team is focused. And if any LPs are listening, I want them to know this too, is making sure we integrate our at the assets, particularly the Lux one, since it's the the new one, everything on our earlier stuff is kind of in pay and we're getting paid what we should be and we're picking up new wells. And we are the nice thing with Lux, we had bought a, an undivided interest that one third interest previously. So we have relationships with all those operators now. And so the additional two thirds should be, you know, quicker. But anybody who's had to deal with this knows operators are never you know, uh, eager to, to to pay you your your royalty. So with all the upstream consolidation going on, I don't know the exact right. operator mix, but you know, if if it's any of the folks who have been caught up in these these mega deals, there's definitely going to be a, a little bit of a delay, right? For sure. Yeah, and we have uh, yeah, we definitely have pioneer exposure for sure. I mean, among, among others, but yeah, pioneer. So you're right. There's there's delay. So we're I mean we're focused on that. In the, for the next couple months, just making sure with all the, you know, with that size of a footprint, there's new activity coming online all the time. So making sure that's buttoned up, but at the same time, kind of the deal side of the house is still looking at opportunities. The other kind of managing partners, myself, you know, we're, we're continuing to meet with our LPs and talk to them about what's happening with the first, you know, the Saxon one, but also what we're seeing, what could be coming down the pike. So we're trying to find the prime the pump for when we get something actionable that again it doesn't surprise them and we can and they can move quickly and and the nice thing is those you know we're building up a, a level of trust with folks with new folks we have a level of trust with guys that we've done business with uh, on the investor side previously and uh they just they want to deploy more capital and energy so if you if you get something attractive they should be willing to or ready to, to move pretty quickly. And the, and the last thing, you know, kind of goes to, like you said, taking, digesting the assets of you, you've acquired, getting a pay status, and really trying to optimize the performance of the portfolio. I don't know Welford's background, but I know Ken and I know Adam was a very successful hedge fund trader. So incredible financial acumen on your, your advisory board. You look at things like hedging and other types of financial engineering to create value. Uh, how do you guys look at the world like that from that view? Yeah, that's a, that's a nice thing. They all have, and we actually have one other advisor from another very large family office who is a little more focused on confidentiality that we we don't publicly name. So the five of them all have their thoughts and let's just focus on hedging. Adam is an invaluable resource on that. I mean, that's how he's made his billions is is being a commodities trader, particularly on the on the uh, gas side. So they it is something we discuss and utilize the resources that Adam provides, Aspire Commodities. This is this is trading firm. Um, so we get a lot of of kind of proprietary information directly to us on what's happening with the markets, what's coming, what's driving. And yeah, so we use that group um, as a sounding board and particularly Adam to think about the hedging side. So we are, and there's always this debate when it comes to minerals, you just stay on hedged or not. And we're not programmatic where, you know, you have to hedge X amount you know, per month or something like that. But we opportunistically will hedge. And we did that particularly on Mesa back at the time we acquired it. And those, you know, that those hedges feel pretty good right now. On the oil side, we're more, I mean, very bullish oil. We do have 
we bought puts, not for all of it, not for all of our PDP, but we bought some puts. Uh, we just don't want to cap any any upside. But we do think about, you know, how much did we spend for the deal, underwriting a, a portion of that, uh, as well as how much, obviously, debt service, but then how much do we want to distribute out and, and utilize hedging appropriately. But it's not just some, as I said, programmatic every quarter we're doing X. It's um, as opportunities and Adam helps us see when those opportunities arise. Phenomenal. And just one last thing, you mentioned you bought a little bit of non-op and, you know, you guys have an operated background. Do you, and you mentioned that switchback kind of the Viper Diamondback model was a compelling one. Do you foresee building out an operated and a non-operated working interest arm and sleeve to this or minerals is the primary focus in the interim here? It's funny. Yeah. I'll, and we'll see if this evolves or not, but we do have that operating background. Again, the, the team RSP, one of our guys actually went over to Firebird after switchback before he came back back here again. But guys who have drilled hundreds and hundreds, hundreds of wells. On the non-op side, I think our investor base for select opportunities will support non-op. And there it was an operator in Panola County that is headquartered here in Dallas, the operator who we know well. So we got very comfortable with this one position. In general, we're, pr- we're probably not going to look to do too much in non-op, but I take this back to switch back. We have talked o- for a long time about doing like an, o- an operations light is what we call it. So not a true Viper, right? We're never going to just focus that much attention to kind of be full-time. Everybody's attention is focused on operators, but <clears throat> if there's select opportunities at 640, 1280 or something, maybe where we own a bunch of minerals in it and we can come to something I could see standing up a rig to, to bring forward value. So yeah, we've, we've talked about this kind of evolution of a operator light model for a long time. And the nice thing is we don't really have to farm that out. We have the skill set here. Yeah, no, it, it just that right rifle shot opportunity to, to go in and drill your own minerals, right? Um, yep. and bring your operating IP. That, that's super interesting for sure. Um, yeah. Well, very good. Uh, Jim, really appreciate it. I've been wanting you to come on for a while and I'm glad we waited because there's a lot to talk about and congrats to you and your team, what you've achieved and, and good luck uh, on everything going forward. Looking forward to the next announcement for sure. Thank you so much, Tim. Really enjoyed it. Appreciate you having me on. You bet. All right. Thanks. Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed The Minerals and Royalties podcast is meant for informational purposes only. Tim Powell and the Minerals and Royalties Authority are not promoting any specific securities or investments, nor are they providing any type of investment advice. If you enjoyed the episode, then I encourage you to tune in more and also check out the Minerals and Royalties Authority YouTube channel. Thanks and see you next time.